Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Um, It's the Lord's Prayer, and it says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Oh, yeah. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All right. So as we go into this sermon, let me give you a little bit of, uh, let you in a bit on the process that I used for writing sermons. What I've realized is that I'm way faster and way better at writing when I find something really cool to talk about. Uh, normally, I start on a sermon when I find some really cool nugget about a verse that I was once already familiar with, but now it causes me to read it in a different light. Oftentimes, this means that I find some nugget like a couple months in advance, um, and so I start a sermon way early. Um, but yeah, so that way I can just like get it down real quick. And this week, let me tell you that, that cool nugget that I found in the Lord's Prayer. The phrase, hallowed be your name, kind of sounds weird grammatically, doesn't it? And that's because it's trying to say something succinctly that English kind of has a hard time doing. The phrase, hallowed be your name, isn't just a mere description like your name is holy and we recognize it. It's, it's actually, if you're familiar with grammar, it's not an indicative, it's a subjunctive. In other words, he's not saying, God, your name is holy. He's saying, God, may your name be made holy, or may your name be kept holy. In other words, Jesus isn't calling us to recognize the simple fact that God is holy. He's telling us to hope for the time when God's name is made holy. Of course, God God is holy no matter what happens. But the problem is that his name isn't always holy. In other words, his reputation to people who don't know him is not nearly as holy as it should be. God gets a bad rap because his people don't act like they should. We talk in kind of a similar way if if someone says something false about you and you say something like, you're tarnishing my good name. You're not saying that you yourself have been tarnished. Far from it. No, you're saying that your name is being tarnished, even though you yourself are innocent. You're losing the respect you deserve. It's the same here. Jesus is saying, may your name be made holy, because God really is holy, but his reputation is being sullied by the way his people are acting. The way that he's talking here sounds a lot like Ezekiel 36. In that point, in that scripture, God is talking to the Israelites who have been deported to Babylon because they were so sinful and they were living in ruins. All the nations look at Israel and they think, man, they must have a puny God because they couldn't defend themselves. But really, we know that it wasn't because God wasn't powerful enough, but because Israel broke its Torah covenant with God. It's a predicament. So God says, so this is what God says, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, 
which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, when Ezekiel was writing, God's name was not holy because it was being profaned by Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would be present with his family forever and that through his God's presence, the whole world would be blessed. But it turns out that Abraham's family has actually made things worse and not better. Abraham's family, Israel, bears the name of God. People know when they hear about Israel that they are God's people. That's why one of the first commandments that God gives to Israel is, you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. The question was not whether Israel would bear God's name. It was self-evidently true that they bore God's name. Israel worshipped this God. For better or worse, they, bear, they bore the name of God. Whatever Israel did reflected on God. Whether they were blessed or not reflected on God. Whether they won in war reflected on, on God. Their destinies were always intertwined. Israel bore the name of God. The question was whether Israel would bear the name in vain or whether they would bear that name accurately. Of course, if you've been in here for more than a week, you know that they really did not. They didn't follow God's law. They rebelled against him constantly. They made the world that he created worse. People saw Israel, and they basically saw the same nation as all the other na nations, except weaker. And so they saw God as just the same God as all the other gods, except weaker. But God in Ezekiel says that his name won't be profaned anymore. He won't put up with it. And look at that, Israel happens to benefit from it. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall, bring, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Like in so many times in the Old Testament, God says that he will make a radical change in the hearts of his people. Where before they wanted to do anything that they could except for following God's law, and they wanted to worship any God except the true God, now they will be inclined to worship the true God and to follow his laws. And then not only would they be saved from destroying themselves, which is what sin naturally does, but God's name would no longer be profaned. In other words, when a Christian prays, hallowed be your name, he isn't just sta stating a fact. He isn't just saying, God, you're holy and I recognize it. Even demons do that. No, what he's really saying is, God, you're not holy. You're, you're holy, but sometimes our actions make it look like you're not. Do what you have to do to let me, to, to me, so that I can show you for who you are. You pray, let your name be made holy in hopes that God would make a radical change in your heart so that you can be the kind of person that can uphold God's reputation. You pray that God would replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh so that you can do what God wants you to do in the world. Hallowed be your name is a solemn prayer. It's a prayer of repentance, not just of your own sin, but of the sin of the whole Christian community. 
Because for better or worse, Christians bear the name of God. When people hear the name Christians, they have to think of Christ. That's a heavy burden for us. We have the reputation of Christ to uphold, and he deserves the most holy possible reputation because he is, in fact, the most holy. Once people know you're a Christian, you have taken on the responsibility of representing Christ. There's no out. There's no escaping it. It's just the way it is. As Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal of reconciliation and peace through us. If we are Christ's ambassadors, and that's like we're the same as the rest of the world, all they'll think of Christ is that he's just like all the other kings except weaker. No, we bear the name of Christ rightly, if we, and we keep his name holy when we, are citizens, when we live as citizens of his kingdom, when we give ourselves up in love for one another, when we become the servant of all, when we feed the poor and make friends with the outcast, when we become all those things we talked about in the Beatitudes, when you have mercy on those that ask for forgiveness and when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's your job now if you're a Christian. And because you bear the name of Christ, then you'd better act like him. And that's a hard thing. So we should constantly be praying that God would make a fundamental change in our hearts so that we can be the kind of person that doesn't bear the name of God in vain, so that God's name could be made as holy as he really is. And we thank God that Christ really did fulfill this. God made his name holy in Christ by demonstrating what holiness really looks like on the cross. He showed what it looks like to bear his name. Not only that, but the on the cross, he brought the colossal change in heart that was necessary if we were going to bear his name. By setting us free from the sinful idols that enslave us and keeping us from bear that, that keep us from bear bearing it rightly and making our hearts a new creation by rising from the dead. You can choose life, and you can choose to uphold the reputation of the God who saved you by imitating him. Second, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom coming was a huge deal for the Israelites. This is a part of Jesus' prayer that every Jew would have been happy to pray, but practically every Jew would have a different idea of what it means. 600 years before the events of this passage, the Israelites were deported from their promised land and their kingdom was destroyed. And since the political kingdom of Israel had fallen, it really looks like that God's kingdom has, had fallen because the kings of Israel were meant to represent the reign of God on earth. Even when Israel came back to the promised land, they didn't have their own king, and so it didn't look like God's kingdom was with them. Everybody had different ideas about how that would happen, though. But in the end, practically everyone had a basic idea of what would happen afterward. The Jews would have their overwhelming revenge on the nations that had oppressed them for over half a millennium. About half a dozen times in a little over a century after Jesus' birth, the Jews in Judea tried to make this vengeful kingdom a reality. But Jesus said that God had a different idea of what kind of kingdom his new people would be. Rather than destroy the Gentiles, God's new kingdom would forgive the Gentiles and include them as part of the new people of God. It wouldn't be a kingdom like all the other kingdoms, based on the threat of force, but based on, the, the, on, but based on love freely given. The Christians would conquer the world, not by shedding its blood, but by shedding their own blood. And this was modeled for us when Jesus took his seat on the throne of the cross. 
He took his crown of thorns and saw the sign that said, This is the king of the Jews, and was pleased to say, This is a real crown, and what this sign says is true, and the cross is my throne. You could say that Jesus was, was right, really based on a technicality. But here we are, 2,000 years later, and there are more people who are living who consider the Jewish Messiah, King Jesus, to be king of the world than there were people living on earth when Jesus was born. The kingdom has lasted a heck of a lot longer than the eternal city of Rome, and the dates of hell shall not prevail against it. But this, your will be done, is a really important thing. You should totally imagine Jesus saying, your kingdom come, and leaving it at that. The kingdom of God coming, in the Old Testament logic, necessarily means that his will is done. It means that there is nothing that stands in the way of God's will on earth, which means that the people are able to flourish and enjoy God's creation in the same way they did before sin entered the world. If you asked a five-year-old Jew at this time, they would be able to say basically the same thing. But your will be done is a reminder they really needed. The Jews at this time were out for a cathartic reversal of fortunes where the oppressor becomes the oppressed. They had a very specific and wrong idea of what God's will being done really meant. It happened to be exactly what their will was. Imagine that. And when Jesus preached that God, through his wisdom, was going to do it in some other way, nobody in the world liked it. But a God you fully understand is not a God worth worshiping. Because at that point, you may as well worship yourself. What's the point of worshiping God's surpassing wisdom if it's just the exact same as your own wisdom? Why not worship your own? Instead, God's kingdom was going to be one where not only would the sins of the Jews be forgiven, but the sins of the whole world. The Old Testament said that somehow through the exile, even the evil Gentile empires would flock to Jerusalem to worship Israel's God in brotherhood and love. The Jews at this time, and I don't blame them, could not possibly imagine that happening except by bringing them to Jerusalem at gunpoint. But God's wisdom somehow led his kingdom to come not at the expense of the world, but at God's own expense. And you can't help but hear Jesus' words from Gethsemane and his prayer right before he was killed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is not an easy prayer to pray. Your will be done is not something to be said flippantly. There will be days when you hate God's will. There will be days when God's will leads you to do something hard or to do something you don't want to do. It certainly did for Jesus, and it will for us. Worse, your will be done means I am not wise enough to, un to easily understand what your will should be, God. Intellectually, it might seem like the easy way out, but spiritually, it's about the hardest thing to do. The amount of time that I've spent wrestling with your will be done when I don't like God's will is a lot. And I've told a number of those stories in the past. But saying your will be done is saying, God, you earned my trust by forgiving my sins. One day I'll understand what you're doing. But until, but until then, that has to be good enough. Because even if you did explain to me what you're doing, I wouldn't understand it. Believing that there is a transcendent God means that there is a ton of stuff outside of your control, and there's tons of stuff that you'd screw up even if it was. But slowly, by maintaining a relationship with Jesus, we can be conformed to his image and actually get some of that wisdom. Third, give us this day our daily bread.
As N.T. Wright says, sometimes we get to this part of the prayer too early. I've often found that if I pray about my daily bread first, I'm not going to get much farther. I like to pray before I go to sleep. But sometimes if I focus on the things that I need to get done every day, and I'm asking God's help for them right away, what ends up happening is that I ramble and ramble about what I need and what I'm stressed about, and I never think about anything else. By the end, I've basically forgotten that I'm praying, and instead I'm restlessly talking about what's so hard. At that point, I may as well just spend that time stressing out alone and struggling to fall asleep. Even worse, I don't even take the time to recognize if God has actually provided for me because I'm so worried about the next thing that I need from him. It's not a recipe for a happy life to never have any gratitude in your prayers. In the last battle, as part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, he describes something similar to this. He shows that you can build a prison in your own mind that keeps you from actually receiving God's blessings even when they come. In this quote, Lucy, who's the super innocent little kid, is talking to Aslan, who's kind of like God, but is also a lion, about a bunch of really unhappy dwarves. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you do something about these poor dwarves? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarves and gave a low growl. Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarves said to one another, hear that? That's the Dane at the other end of the table, trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in, in again. Then Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees, pies and tons and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough. But it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought that they were eating and drinking only the sort of things that you might find in a stable. One said that he was trying to eat hay, and another said that he had gotten a bit of an old turnip, and a third said that he had a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling, till in a few minutes there was a free fight under the good food, and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they can't be taken out. It's really easy for you, without knowing it, to build a prison for yourself and your mind that keeps you from receiving God's blessings. You get something amazing, and all you're thinking about is the next thing you need. We lose the big picture of God's kingdom coming and his will being done, of justice and righteousness finally coming to reign in the world, of his name finally being made holy, and his reputation being spread through the earth, and of our role in it. And instead, we're thinking about one more paper we have to write, and one more meal that we have to make, and one more person we have to visit. Over time, though, if we don't remind ourselves of God's story, if we don't have time to feel gratitude for the way that God has already helped us, we can start to look like those dwarves. 
and it happens so slowly that you don't even recognize it. So next time you're tempted not to spend any time thanking God for what he's done already, thank, keep in mind that the time may come when you can't thank him ever again because your brain has been warped out of shape. And then you'll have a hard time receiving his blessings even when they do come. Maybe that's why our generation, especially young people like me in the West, may just have the most material blessings in the history of the world, yet may just be the least happy. All this to say that gratitude isn't just a spiritual duty, but it's super important to being a happy person. And we all would like to be happy, wouldn't we? And I think we'd be better at this gratitude thing if we really recognize what we are doing when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God to give us the food that we need to survive. We're asking the one who hung the stars in the sky, made the world with a simple command, who knows everything and is so holy and we can't possibly be in his presence, to give us a McDonald's cheeseburger. It's an absolute miracle. Listen to this from Revelation. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay. Now imagine that you're John, seeing this whole glorious vision. And you zoom in and enhance, and zoom in and enhance. And in that bowl of incense, in which are held the prayers of the saints, you see my prayer that God would give me a McDonald's cheeseburger. It sounds ridiculous. When we pray for our daily bread, we are participating in the worship that's happening right now in God's throne room. Our prayer is the incense that's being burned in the heavenly temple. What kind of God is as glorious as that one, but actually has time to answer my cheeseburger prayer? What kind of God is as glorious as that one, but actually wants to be praised by my cheeseburger prayer? Who is actually pleased enough by my cheeseburger prayer to put it in a place of heavenly worship next to all the angels singing and all the animals with all kinds of eyes and horns, as if I'm an equal or greater participant in God's worship than these glorious angels? Jesus teaches us to have the boldness to pray for our daily bread to that God. He teaches us to pray that we get done what we need to get done today to that God. He wants us to pray to that God that our friends at work would be nice to us. I'm telling you, out of all the gods who, that were worshipped in the ancient world, there might be a tiny puny god that you asked for your cheeseburger. But you certainly wouldn't have asked the god who created the whole universe and who sits on the throne, enthroned as king of the whole world for a cheeseburger. That's, but that's the kind of god that we serve. What I find so often happens, though, is that unless I take some time, some serious time, to focus on God and what he's doing in the world, give us this day our daily bread simply becomes a grocery list for God. It's one more way to talk about my stress, but not, but not actually deal with it. What Jesus has done is he's modeled for us that you can actually pray to God about this tiny stuff that you're dealing with every day. But he's also modeled that before you do that, 
you should tell the story of the gospel to yourself again. While you're asking God for your cheeseburger, you should have the, the image of your kingdom come, your will be done, and let your name be made holy, hot on its heels. You should not only be thinking about your needs because God cares about them, but also because your needs fit into this whole huge story about how God's rule from heaven is breaking into the earth and invading it so that everything sad comes untrue and that God wipes away every tear from their eyes and finally brings justice and righteousness to the earth. You're saying, God giving me this cheeseburger, because then in my work in the spirit, the cheeseburger will be part of the redemption story of the entire world. God help me with my coworkers so that I can better demonstrate to the world that what it looks like to be a citizen of your kingdom and to make your name holy. God help me be productive today so that every brick I lay is a brick of your temple on earth. I find that I'm always most stressed about stuff that I don't really want to do and that I don't see the point of. But you put all this in context and practically everything is meaningful. If I'm working hard and exhausted, I'm working hard and exhausted for God's kingdom. If I'm suffering from hunger pains, I'm suffering them for God's kingdom. If I stub my toe and I, hope, and I hope it heals and I bear that pain for God's kingdom. The gospel redeems every major difficulty and minor inconvenience because every one of them fits into the grand narrative of God saving the world and allowing his church to be part of it. That's why it can be so helpful to hold off on praying your daily bread until after you've retold yourself the whole story. Because it's so easy to believe the world's story, that your stresses and concerns and hunger are ultimately meaningless, because it's always been this way and it'll always be this way. We pray for our daily bread because it, getting it foreshadows the day when God will feed us in his eternal city, and because our daily bread is going to be a part of the story of how God saved the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us a glimpse of the bigger picture so that our lives would be infused with meaning and we would be motivated to use every tiny task for the story of the redemption of the world and for the praise of your glory. In your name, amen.